Chapter 7 of The Octave of Claudius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Gruzinski. The Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne. Chapter 7. The rest of the story Claudius had to tell need not be told in his own words. He had come to London with his fifty pounds in his pocket and had taken cheap lodgings in Bloomsbury. He meant to live economically, but he did not quite know how to do it. He also meant to write, and he did not quite know how to do that either. It was probably his acquaintance with Burnage and Monset at Cambridge that had given him this idea of making a living by literature. These two men had been actually printed in a London paper, Burnage once and Monset twice. In all three cases it was poetry, and unremunerated. Claudius did not think that he could write poetry. He cheerfully acknowledged in Burnage and Monset their superior talents. But in common with most men, he wanted to tell a story, and unlike most men, he had a story to tell. He had had it for a long time. He remembered vaguely what had started it. He had been one summer evening on a country railway station, and as he waited for the train, he had read the advertisements, and some chance line of the merest foolishness had been whimsical enough to give him a suggestion. Looking up, he saw at the further end of the platform a woman standing silhouetted against the sunset sky, and the sight of her had carried the suggestion on. It had all been forgotten next day, and all remembered many days afterwards. Since that time, it had gone through a long period of change and growth in his mind, until he knew all the people of his story intimately, and its incidents had become like incidents in his own career. Now, when he had to make his own livelihood, he thought he would write his own novel. Both Burnage and Monset had drawn for themselves brilliant pictures of literary success, and Claudius had listened. He knew that such success was not for him. He merely hoped to write a passable, readable, and consequently saleable story. There was nothing else that he cared to do. While he was learning how to write, he was surprised to find there was so very much to learn, and learning how to live economically, the fifty pounds slipped away. There came a day when he left his Bloomsbury lodgings and took all his personal belongings to a shop in the Fulham Road. Nominally and externally was a second-hand furniture shop, but there was really nothing that its proprietor would not buy and sell. He was an obese man with a little voice and a quick, narrow eye, and a watch-chain like a golden snake that suns itself on a hillock. To this man, Claudius sold all his books and almost all his clothes, leaving himself hardly enough to keep himself warm. It was late winter." "'Now, sir,' said the man, when the last iniquitous bargain had been completed, "'is there anything else? I buy anything and sell anything. Think now, sir. Any little bits of furniture? Old carpets or rugs? Fetch em away in my own cart and give you no trouble. Or bedding now. I give a fair price for that.' Claudius, being in a rather mad and bitter mood, had answered that he would sell himself body and soul for one thousand pounds and one year to spend it in. 
Come now, sir, the man went on, joking apart. I'm not joking. I've nothing else to sell, and I mean what I say. Supposing, the man said, rubbing his fat chin, the law allowed it, and I could take you up somehow. I might risk two hundred pounds and give you your year. It'd be a speculation, but there, there, where'd my security be? No, that's all nonsense. Claudius went off with something under ten pounds in his pockets. Instead of two rooms in Bloomsbury, he now took one small and dirty room in a back street in the Fulham neighborhood. Here he almost starved himself, and constantly overworked himself. He had intended at one time to write his novel to make his living. Now he chiefly wanted to live in order to write his novel well. It was, as it were, a race against time to get the novel finished, as he would have it, before the little money that he had gave out. Hopelessly improvident and unpractical, he made no calculation for a possible future when the novel might be finished and prove a failure. His experiences in those lower strata of London in which he now lived had helped to make him bitter and angry with the world, so that he told himself that when his novel was finished, he would no longer want to live in the world at all. It seemed to be a world in which there was no generosity and no sense of what was really valuable. To guess the motives of those with whom he came in contact, he persuaded himself that he had only to guess the meanest possible in order to be always right. The struggle for life hardly seemed worthwhile. Sore as he still was at the treatment he had received from his father, his depression was further increased by his miserable surroundings, his semi-starvation, his occasional loss of his belief in his power to write it all, and his terrible loneliness. The latter was his own proud and foolish fault. It is true that the friends he might have had in London were quite singularly few, but still there were some. Partly from the belief that he would work best if he worked alone, and still more from a reluctance to meet in his adversity those whom he had known in his prosperity, or to discuss the quarrel with his father, Claudius had kept to himself. Otherwise, Burnage, to do him justice, would have been willing, staunch and loyal, to have walked hand in hand with his lonely embryo novelist, until that point when Claudius really needed a friend. Lady Verriter, an old friend of the Sandell family, a kindly and worldly woman, who was fond of Claudius, would have gone with him much further, and there were others of less importance who would have been glad to see him. But Claudius would have none of them. The lower he sank in poverty and dejection, the more obstinate he became on this point. He had much the same instinct that makes the wounded animal hide itself. On the day that the novel was finished, Claudius sent it off to a publishing firm. It came back almost directly, and he sent it to another. He paid his landlady, and had one shilling left in his pocket. And now he thought that he could die quite easily, and soon found that he could not. He was young, and unable to rid himself of the instinctive love of life. There were many ways in which a man of good character and education and some abilities could make a fair livelihood. None of them appealed to his tastes particularly, but he determined to adopt one of them, any one, 
only it was necessary to have a little money first. He must be able to buy an outfit and pay a railway fare, or he could do nothing. If the publishers accepted his novel, he determined to sink his pride and ask for an advance from them. This was his only chance. He had, in his letter to them, asked them to let him have their opinion as soon as possible, and somehow or other he must hang on until their letter came. He had only one shilling on which to wait. To speak accurately, he had only eleven pence, for the landlady had intimated that she would charge one penny for taking in the letter for him when he was no longer her lodger. As it was necessary to make his eleven pence last as long as possible, he considered that it would be absurd to spend any of it on a bed. The early summer had begun now, fortunately, and the nights were just warm enough to make it possible to keep in the open air without killing oneself. He had found a spot away on Wimbledon Common where it was unlikely that anyone would interfere with him. There he slept for nine successive nights. Indeed, he spent most of the days there, too, for he found himself too weak to do very much walking about. On the morning of the 10th, he had only one penny left out of the shilling, which the landlady would want if there was a letter for him. He walked slowly to his old lodging in Fulham and inquired if there was a letter. There was a letter, and the novel had come back. The landlady refused to take his penny and said that he could leave the parcel with her. His first sensation was one of intense delight that he would now be able to buy something to eat. He hurried off. When he got to the baker's shop, he was so breathless that he could hardly ask for what he wanted. He bought a penny loaf and hid it under his coat, breaking bits of it off and eating them as he went along. It was very beautiful bread, he thought. When he had finished half the bread, he put the rest in his pocket. He had a vague idea that when he had come to the end of the bread, he would have come to the end of everything. It was with the greatest difficulty that he walked back to Wimbledon Common. There, among some verze bushes, out of sight, he lay down. Late in the evening, he finished his bread. He did not sleep that night, but in the early morning he dozed off for an hour or two. When he awoke, the world seemed to be very far off. Nothing that he had ever said or done seemed to him to be quite real. There was no gnawing of hunger now and even the instinctive craving for mere life had left him. He did not think about his novel at all, but he noticed very small things. He picked a big leaf and counted the veins in it carefully. A gradual drowsiness came over him, and he had moments when his consciousness seemed to go, and he was not sure whether he was walking or lying down. It was on that night, as has already been described, the doctor found him. Claudius did not tell all this. He gave the bare facts without comment, and hardly recorded at all what his sensations had been. When he had finished, Mrs. Lamb rose and said quietly, "'That has been very interesting to me, Mr. Sandell. I am sorry that you suffered so much. You must not suffer any more. Life must be made easy for you.' "'It has been already too easy, I'm afraid. I am tired and must say good night.' She gave him her hand, it shook visibly, and even Sandell noticed that she seemed to be, with difficulty, concealing some emotion. He reproached himself. 
Ah, Mrs. Lamb, he said, you must not believe too much in my own story of my own sufferings. One is innobly tempted to make the most of such things when one is speaking to sympathetic people. No, she said, you did not do that, but I certainly am sympathetic. Good night, Mr. Sandell. Good night, Gabriel. Dr. Lamb looked at her curiously from narrowed eyes. He looked like a chess player, hovering over a great and final move, whose attention has been for a moment distracted. Good night, my dear, he said. When she had got upstairs that night, she hesitated a moment before the door of the room that had been her dead baby's nursery. Her thin white hand touched the handle of the door and then left it. She dared not go in. In her own room, she flung herself on the bed. After a minute or two, she rose and knelt down. There were prayers which she said in a certain formal order every night. She began the first of them in a low voice, almighty and most merciful. Then she stopped suddenly, her whole body shaken by a dry sob. God help me, she wailed. God help me, I'm a wicked woman. I hate Gabriel. I hate him. Hate him. Make me love him again. Take away my sin, my sin that I can't help or fight against any more. Even in the moment of her prayer, she felt no faintest hope. This sudden, awful love for Claudius that had come upon her seemed to have entered too deeply to be part of her, so that not even the fires of torment could burn it out. In great anguish she prayed on, Was I not tried enough and heard enough? Every day I see women in the street that have their babies with them, and they're laughing. They don't know that they're driving me mad. They don't know it but they are. I bore it all when my darling was taken away from me. I bore it all when I lost Gabriel's love, too. Only have mercy now. Do not let me be wicked. Oh, God! Once more she stopped suddenly. This time she rose to her feet. It's no use, she said. God has left me. She did not sob any more at all. She was perfectly quiet. When the dawn stole into her room hours afterwards, she still lay with eyes wide open. Her hands rested quietly by her side. All through her sleepless hours she had hardly moved. It was such a little thing to lose one's sleep, when one had lost one's child, and love, and God. End of chapter 7